Thank you for downloading the Global and Imperial History Research Seminar podcast presented by the University of Oxford's History Faculty. Uh, Chris was an undergraduate here. He then went away for one year and then came back in 2000. That's right. 2000 and did the Master of Studies and then the MPS doctorate. And now he is a lecturer at Edinburgh University. So take heart, take heart. <laughs> know, jobs, ten years' time. <laughs> uh, Chris is a specialist in, um, amongst other things, in missions in North India and did his thesis on the mass movements in the uh, province of the Punjab, uh, the mass movements of conversion. And, but today he's going to talk about a different part of India, a different time frame. Um, and is going to look at um, Christianity in the wake of independence with a special reference to B. Griffiths, who was an an intriguing person who stands for a lot of interesting themes, was a Benedictine monk who became a sannyasi. So, Chris, over to you. Thank you. Um, well, first, first of all, thanks very much indeed for having Ms. Brown and uh, to everyone for coming along. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is actually one of two uh, current projects that I have on the go. Um, they're both from a similar background, which is an interest in uh, the meeting of European and Asian cultures in the modern era, particularly where religion um, and psychological ideas and experiences are concerned. And there's quite a lot of crossover there, um, certainly from the 50s and the 60s, the 1950s and 60s um, onwards. So in general, my research and also my teaching recently is trying to look at how this interplay um, occurs, how it's conceptualised by various players, and also how it influences politics and how it's influenced and conditioned by politics. So that's the general background. One of the projects at the moment is with a few different colleagues from um, Europe, India and the US. We're trying to look at the first generation of psychoanalysis in India and in um, Japan. This is roughly the early 20s to the 1940s. Um, and my part of that is looking at how Freudian ideas come to um, cross over with, intermingle with um, Christian, Buddhist, and uh, Hindu cosmologies, and particularly mental um, practices, meditative practices. But this is, this is one of the uh, two projects that's ongoing. The other one, which is in um, slightly earlier stage of development, is this present one. Um, and it actually crosses over with the psychoanalysis project more than, more than you might expect. I'll try to come on to that later. What I'm trying to do is to explore Western involvement with Indian Christianity after 1947, after Indian independence. My impression is that our current understanding of uh, Christianity in India tends to um, not look so much at this period. It tends to be more interested either in the colonial era with uh, the missions and different sorts of activities between Europeans uh, and Indians in that period. And then also from the probably early to mid-1980s to the present day, um, because at this point you get the rise of um, quite an extreme form of uh, Hindu nationalism, which makes life very difficult for Indians Christians as well as uh, Muslims. So although those two periods are very important uh, to look at, I still think you can make some arguments for looking at this period that comes in between. Um, Firstly, I think it's a period at which, uh, on the national level, there's an experiment with secularism, which is actually quite fragile, a constitutional, political, and a cultural experiment, which seems to conflict with differing um, regional regional and local priorities. Because at the regional and local levels in India, there are parties, uh, institutions, communities of people who really don't want uh, a secular project and who feel some of them to be quite threatened by it. Just to give you two big examples of what I mean, um, in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu, you have the, uh, the DMK, the political party, who uh, in the post-independence period, they're associated with a kind of Tamil cultural nationalism. 
And they see the events of 1947 as being something of a victory for uh, foreigners, which is one of the expressions that some of them use, because the Indian nationalist movement is associated with mainly North Indians and high caste uh, Hindu culture and symbols, as far as they're concerned. So what's interesting for them is that they can regard some North Indians as being essentially foreigners, while on the other hand, European Jesuit missionaries from previous centuries, like uh, Giuseppe Besky and Roberto de Nobili, they see as being true Tamil patriots because of their contribution to the Tamil language. Um, the second of the two examples of this complex <coughs> regional national dynamic, I think, is the successful lobbying by the state government of Madhya Pradesh um, by Hindu nationalists in the mid-1950s to look into Christian missionary uh, activity. Um, this came off the back of several months of harassment of some local Christians by members of the, uh, the RSS, particularly because there have been large-scale conversions of so-called um, Adivasis or tribal peoples in this period. And they were successful. They managed to have this committee launched, and its report, the Niyogi Committee Report on Christian Missionary Activities, was published in 1956. Highly controversial, very, very critical of Christian missionaries in all sorts of ways, and Nehru wanted very little to do with it. He, he wanted to try and insist that his government was not bound by it and didn't necessarily agree with any of its conclusions. And in fact, Nehru is quite an important figure because in later years, when you get to the 1980s, some Hindu nationalists look back on Nehru's 17-year premiership in India as being a sort of shield for um, aggressive Christian missionary activity, in particular foreign and particularly American missionary activity. Um, but as uh, Professor Brown brings out actually in some of uh, her work, Nero has a range of reasons why he needs to protect this sense of a religiously uh, composite nation in India and have this broad pluralistic sense of secularism. Um, he's worried about a retrograde form of religious nationalism rearing its head in India uh, and taking over. He's worried about the unity of the country being compromised. There are secessionist fears for various um, parts of India. And he's also worried about the international community, which is, of course, led by countries with significant Christian populations. Um, so that's the first reason. This is a, a period of political experimentation when things could go either way. And I think if you look at Pakistan in the same period, it's clear that whatever your constitutional arrangements um, if they work out in practice in the first few years, can set you on a certain trajectory for your country's political culture for years and for decades afterwards. And so I think it's a critical period to try to understand. And those of us who look at the 1980s as being a, a new problem in terms of Hindu nationalism and anti-Christian rhetoric and legislation, really there's a lot going on in the 50s and the 60s that we should be uh, paying attention to. So that's one reason why I think I make a case for this period. The other reason, um, rather different, but I think of equal interest, is that it's um, a period of intellectual and imaginative creativity, because you have Indian and non-Indian theologians and philosophers trying to develop what they would think of as being a truly Indian form of uh, Christianity. I think to an extent this goes back to the 1830s and 1840s in India, you have what people call the Indian Renaissance or the, ba or the Bengal uh, Renaissance, where people are starting to think about the connections between Hinduism and between um, Christianity. But in terms of a truly Indian uh, theology, then progress, it could be argued, has been relatively limited. And even by the 1960s, there are some writers suggesting that Indian Christian thinking and worship is still largely Western. So there's quite a lot of space for something truly Indian to be developed. And because of these political circumstances, it's actually quite an urgent uh, project in the 1950s and the 1960s. The big thing that all the Indian churches are trying to do is to prove their Indianness, to prove their um, legitimacy. 
And so you have moves towards this from Indian theologians, from shifts in uh, the institutional structures within uh, Indian Christianity. But my own research is trying to look at the influence in particular that Western Christians, and particularly Western Christians who were new to this context in the 1940s and the 1950s, what they were trying to do and whether they were effective or whether in some ways they actually um, reversed the process of finding a truly Indian Christianity, so-called. And we can look into later whether there is whether that's a problematic concept uh, in itself. But the group that I'm focusing on, there is one person in particular, um, a group of European contemplatives who go out to India in um, the 1940s and the 1950s. And principal amongst these, there are two French Catholics, Fathers Jules, uh, Jules Montchanin and Henri Lasso. Uh, the latter becomes quite well known as Swami Abhishekthananda. There's a Belgian Trappist, uh, Father Francis Mahieu, and an English Benedictine, Father Bede Griffiths. What's interesting is that all four of them are um, they're trying to explore Indian analogues to a Christian contemplative experience, and at the same time try and revive the contemplative tradition in, um, in Western Christianity uh, as well. But they're all shaped by major intellectual trends that come from uh, the West predominantly. Things like ecumenism, uh, comparative religion, uh, modern psychology, and its application in the spiritual life and in pastoral care, including the rediscovery of meditative practices that they think have fallen by the wayside uh, in Western Christianity. What's interesting about them is that um, they don't seem to have a great understanding of the socio-political context in India. They don't seem to know a great deal about India by the time uh, that they get out there. And I think this makes things rather unpredictable in terms of their likely uh, contribution and their likely reception out in India. <clears throat> to give an example, Father Mahia was refused an Indian visa three times before he was finally allowed into the country. Um, this is in the context of debates in Nehru's own cabinet in this period about whether there are too many foreigners in general or perhaps too many foreign missionaries also uh, in India in the early 1950s. Nehru was quite keen to uh, not be seen to be anti missionaries in particular, because that would seem to compromise the idea of secularism uh, and pluralism. But he is concerned, and his cabinet are concerned, about the number of foreigners generally. So it's quite hard for these people to get in. Um, but Father Mahia's case uh, was finally resolved when Nehru himself took a look at it through his uh, sister. And he decided that if Mahia was interested in an encounter between Hinduism and Christianity, then he was very welcome. This was the sort of thing that Nehru wanted to be uh, happening in India in the 1950s. But if, on the other hand, he was interested in evangelising, he would be very much less welcome. This is the sort of activity that he absolutely must not be engaging in if he comes into the country. So this, I think, gives us one of the big questions for this area of research, which is, is there a meaningful distinction to be made in any case between evangelism on the one hand and encounter on the other, between mission um, and dialogue? Uh, and if there is, uh, is uh, what exactly are these Europeans involved in? Do they come down on one side or they come down on the other? Is it a question mainly of perceptions and is this, is this what we need to be uh, looking into? And I'm going to try to explore some aspects of that using B. Griffiths as, as a uh, particular example later on. But the second question is uh, how are Griffiths and his colleagues viewed by various uh, players in India, Indian church leaders, Indian theologians, ordinary Indian congregations amongst whom they were working. Um, it's difficult to find source material on this, and I'll try and say a bit about, about that later, but to give an example, Griffith's letters, his early letters back from India, suggest that in Bangalore in particular, where he is for a few months after he lands in India in 1855, 
There's a feeling that Europeans have been telling Indians how to live, how to think, how to behave for quite a while now. And to, uh, to paraphrase Clement Attlee, a period of silence on their part would be rather welcome. So the last thing they want is more Europeans coming in and suggesting how they run Indian Christianity. Even, for example, the likes of uh, M.M. Thomas, who's quite a, a, um, an important Indian theologian in this period, he's not hostile to Europeans, but he suggests that um, Indian Christianity and Asian Christianity is bound up with the discovery of new political as well as spiritual values in the 1950s and 60s, which can only be discovered and developed by Indians and Asians for themselves. It isn't the kind of thing that can be taught or introduced by anybody else. So that's the second set of questions about how these people are being received um, in India. A third set of questions is what, in the end, do Griffiths and his friends actually um, achieve? Is there a danger that despite their um, intentions and the brilliance of some of them and their, their thinking and their writing, do they make it difficult for Indian Christians to bury what's been a, a big um, piece of nationalist rhetoric ever since the 1910s, 1920s, that Christianity in India is really foreign? and is really denationalizing, despite all the claims made for its, um, and the correct claims made for its longevity, particularly in the south of India. Um, if the Indian uh, Christian churches are trying to shake off this reputation, do Europeans, just by virtue of their nationality, really help? For example, there's a point at which um, Griffith's own local bishop in South India writes to him to say uh, that he has pretensions to being a guru in India, and that in fact he should just go back to the west. A final set of questions, um, I think, concern a slightly more broad political picture here is what do the, the waves that this group of Europeans make in India, what do these tell us about the project of secularism in its early years and what I think are fairly formative years um, in India? How can we use their experience to try to understand the project of Indian secularism? So I think it's significant that by the early 1980s, when you have uh, the rise, or at least the increasing popularity of a certain strain of Hindu nationalism, that some of the claims made about people like B. Griffiths are very, very similar to the tropes that existed in the 1920s and the 1930s where colonial era missionaries are concerned. So, for example, um, Sita Ram Gol, author of Catholic Ashrams, Sannyasins or Swindlers, title obviously tells you a fair amount um, in its own right. He's a polemicist, but at the same time, the general charge that he makes is by no means uh, uncommon. He says that basically the idea of dialogue, of enculturation, indigenization, is basically a sophisticated form of evangelism. And very damagingly for Indian Christianity, he's able to quote from um, European as well as Indian theologians uh, to that effect. So, for example, a Danish theologian writing in the 1960s, based in Bangalore, had said, um, indigenization is evangelization. It is the planting of the gospel inside another culture, another philosophy, another religion. Uh, Gold also manages to quote B. Griffiths. Griffiths had said, In India we need a Christian Vedanta and a Christian Yoga. That is a system of theology which makes use not only of the terms and concepts, but of the whole structure of thought of the Vedanta, as the Greek fathers used Plato and Aristotle. So Gold unsurprisingly hones in on the word use here. And he suggests that Griffiths and others are basically using uh, Hinduism as a kind of socio-cultural vehicle, an empty vehicle into which they can insert the key ideas for Christianity and then exploit it as a kind of a, a cultural Trojan horse, if that's not too complicated a, um, uh, an idea, to try to make its way surreptitiously 
into India and to make large numbers of conversions. So Gold says, wrapping up his argument, it should not be a matter of surprise that the mission has started singing hymns of praise to Hindu culture. That is the mission casting covetous glances before mounting a marauding expedition. And interestingly, Gold um, himself republishes the 1956 Niyogi report, the one that had been very critical of Christian missionary activity. Again, a very telling title he gives to his book, Vindicated by Time. And the arguments he makes really, I think, beg the question of whether anything has been achieved in Indian Christianity in terms of developing it and promoting it as a truly Indian uh, religious, philosophical and cultural phenomenon. And whether B. Griffiths and his friends, either intended or unintended, direct or indirect, have perhaps contributed to this as a problem, as opposed to helping out, as they were all genuinely seeking to do. So if these are some of the questions, and as I say, this is a very um, early stage project at the moment. These are some of the questions that I'm, I'm starting to, to come across in this. What I wanted to do for the rest of the time that I have is just introduce two aspects of it in particular to give you an idea about how some of these themes um, are coming along and what might be involved in terms of, in terms of this research. And hopefully I can get through both, but if I can only get through one, then that'll be, um, that'll be fine. Uh, so firstly, given that perceptions on all sides are rather central, I wanted just to offer a few thoughts on Griffiths, B. Griffiths' own reactions to India when he gets there, and how he seems to mix these deep reactions with his own expectations about India, with his own philosophical background, and ask some questions about whether this suggests he's going to be a force for sort of openness and what you might be able to call dialogue, or whether in fact it's rather more complicated than that, and whether the situation could be rather more unpredictable. Um, secondly, um, because as for some of his Indian colleagues, Griffiths thinks about Indian Christianity within a, a Western and within a global Christian and political um, context, I want to look at how both Griffiths and one of his uh, very important Indian theologian colleagues M.M. Thomas at this point, are starting to think about what Indian Christianity should look like and whether there are social and political dimensions to that. So these two themes I'm going to try to touch on. Hopefully they'll, they'll give us a sense of how, how complex, but I think how interesting this um, project could be. Okay, so first of all, just do a very brief bit of background on B. Griffiths. I did have some photos of him, but for reasons I'll explain later on, I decided not um, to use them, because I think it, for those of you that aren't aware of what he looked like, it might slightly prejudice your reception of the <coughs> and I'll explain a bit more later. So he was born, he was born uh, Alan Griffiths um, in England in 1906. He was in India from 1955 until his death in 1993, mostly, um, for nearly 40 years, mostly in Kerala and then in Tamil Nadu. I think quite significantly um, he was a convert to Christianity. <coughs> Excuse me. He was not brought up in a particularly religious environment. And the reason I think this is probably quite important is that although problems of nationality um, uh, could have been difficult for Griffiths in India, and for some people they, they clearly are, I think it's true that a lot of the greatest pioneers within Indian Christianity and also within a number of other world religions have been converts because they're able to see the, their adopted religion, their adopted system, initially from the outside and then later from the inside, which I think is a key double perspective that other people do not have. He's also gone through, as other people have, quite a, a disturbing personal and cultural experience of dislocation initially, having to shift from one worldview to another. And this naturally, in the case of Griffiths, and in the case of others, for example, Brahmabandha Upadhyay and Pandita Ramabai, two important Indian converts to Christianity, gone through a process of trying to judge the applicability 
at a very deep experiential level of two different systems and two different worldviews. And they, I think they are naturally able to develop a sense of the compatibility or otherwise of these sorts of systems. Another advantage I think Griffiths has is that his conversion was primarily based in experience. By that I mean, as he goes through in his 20s, he goes through a series of different ideas and different ways of looking at the world, and he's a brilliant writer in terms of uh, tracking his own progress and thinking out loud about his own progress. He rejects uh, social institutions as being a, the real location of any kind of meaning. He thinks Christian institutions in the West are outmoded, and the sooner they naturally die away, um, the better. He also rejects, to an extent, um, intellectual discourse, because in his own experience, this tends to wrap you up in yourself, it tends to be narcissistic ultimately, and it tends to strengthen the ego rather than um, decenter it in the way that ultimately is what you need to try to be doing. So to give you this in his own words, he says, it was the experience which came first, and so it must always be. All our knowledge comes to us directly or indirectly from experience, from the vital experience of the senses and imagination. Philosophers can interpret our experience, but ideas can never take the place of experience. An idea of God which had no relation to my own experience would have no interest for me. I want to make it clear, I don't mean by this that Griffiths thought that an experiential take on the sorts of problems that interreligious dialogue or enculturation bring up gives you a kind of Archimedean point, a point of complete objectivity from which you can work and from which you can happily solve philosophical and theological problems. Um, I think he believed, along with someone like Carl Jung, of, who's, of whom he was a great fan, that this kind of Archimedean point, complete, a complete standing outside, is simply not available to human beings. But it is important because I think there's potential value in terms of dialogue from beginning with experience and having intelligibility, having conceptualization and having institutions be secondary to that sort of experience. But I think the question of how intelligible to ordinary people this approach would be and how amenable in the particular Indian situation that he enters, um, I think that's something else entirely. And we just have to see how that works out uh, in practice. And I'll try and give you some uh, hints about it here. But what's crucial, as I've said already, um, when Bede enters India in 1955, he really doesn't have a strong sense of, of what is going on in that country politically or, or more broadly. From his writings, uh, there, there seems to be very little about the Indian Christian churches in India that he um, understands particularly well, as I say, or about Indian politics more generally. For example, when the Archbishop of Bangalore sends him a telegram just before he gets on the boat to Bombay, saying, actually, the whole plan for you to come here and for you to set up a Benedictine-style institution is off. We can't do it. Don't come. He ignores it and he gets on the boat anyway because he's already made um, his plans and he desperately wants to get out to India. He's been messed about in all sorts of ways already. But he doesn't really know why uh, this is happening and when he later on encounters all sorts of problems setting up institutions in Kerala and in Tamil Nadu, his, uh, his reasoning about these problems is always on the basis of personality, politics, personal differences, um, as opposed to any broader sense of political problems either within the church or more broadly uh, in India. And I wouldn't want to infer this necessarily that um, there are problems and he's simply not aware of them or he's, all, he's ignoring this wider context. It may just be that there are only these very personal problems that he alludes to. But I think, taken alongside his lack of commentary more generally on socio-political problems in India, it does suggest that he doesn't have a particularly strong grasp of what's going on. So the question there is whether this necessarily uh, matters, especially if you're seeking to establish a contemplative 
Christian institution, which is what he is setting out to do. And it's difficult to tell because the contemplative um, style of things was not one that colonial era missionaries had really um, attempted at all in India. His beads wasn't the first, but as I say, it wasn't something that many people had been doing in India beforehand. So what the contemplative uh, take on things might mean in India and for this mission versus dialogue problem wasn't really clear by the time that Bede uh, gets there. You could argue on the one hand that since the principal charge made by the Niyogi committee against Christian missionaries was that they were um, noisy, that they slandered um, Indian traditions, that they used material inducements for converts, and that their style of evangelization was extremely aggressive. All these sorts of things would seem to be countered quite effectively by a contemplative institution that focuses on uh, silence, um, on poverty, and on self-sufficiency. So, for example, it's hard to see B. Griffiths in the same vein as the, the, the stereotype of a colonial missionary storming through the villages and denouncing Indian traditions left, right, and centre. Also, I think contemplative Christianity's emphasis on trying to remove all the objects to human willfulness that sort of block you from having an experience of the divine. This is also quite significant because it makes things difficult for the ways that we, uh, in the past, have tried to understand mission work and the dynamics of conversion. For example, in terms of agency, in terms of motivation, and in terms of responsibility. And I think here there's been some interesting commentary by Talal Assad who suggests that for historians or for commentators at the time in India uh, and elsewhere to suggest that agency is the key way of understanding conversion is actually quite flawed because it, it imposes this model of the individual as being an independent moral actor upon a situation where most of the players, whether it's missionaries or converts or others, wouldn't really have seen things like that. That isn't how they see um, the primary, dy primary dynamics of, uh, of human societies, because it doesn't really allow for the activity um, of the divine, that sort of argumentation. So I think, with that in mind, the idea of a contemplative style, a contemplative contribution to Christianity in India, it would tend to complicate our view of what missionizing or evangelism and conversion really means. So again, it could possibly be quite uh, creative. I think also the example of B. Griffiths suggests to us that you have to consider all aspects of the individual when you're talking about interreligious dialogue. And this is something I'm hoping this research will be able to do, as opposed to just considering theological ideas um, in their pure form, as it were, without taking account of the people who are putting them forward and why they might be putting them forward. Because in B's case, although he, his experience of Christianity is very much experiential, um, he's very much the contemplative, his is not in any way an inward-looking sort of religion. He's come to Christianity through initially um, a deep nature, mysticism, and then later a very harsh critique of modernity that drew on Tolstoy, uh, on Ruskin, and on Gandhi. And the result in his writings, which is fascinating to see, is that every single aspect of the world around him, and this is someone who writes letters every single day of his life, pretty much, every single aspect of the world around him, every detail, every human gesture, every detail of human dress, architecture, everything speaks to him in some way of the inner condition of the people concerned, the people who are involved, the people who build the buildings, the people who plan the city, everything. Um, and because of this, because of this receptivity, he puts this together with a very enthusiastic and sometimes quite uh, declarative over-interpretation of what might be going on. And this makes him potentially quite um, a difficult person uh, to deal with. He's not backwards in coming forwards about his interpretation of the details of what he sees around him. When it comes to India, this can be quite, uh, quite significant. 
So to give you a flavour of what I'm talking about, as he's writing while he's on the boat from England to India, uh, on his way he writes to a friend that Port Said was uh, incredibly romantic and also immensely evil. You, had, you felt that it was a place where the Ten Commandments were habitually broken. Uh, and then after landing in Bombay, he remembers Aden as being the point where he'd finally entered what he, uh, saw, he thought of as being the real atmosphere of the East. And I want to give you a little quote from that letter. He says, I can't tell you how the sight of these black and brown people affects me. It brings back all that I've ever learned from D.H. Lawrence. They seem to live with a different kind of life. It's partly, I think, that the body, being continually exposed to the sun, lives its own deep life and draws the soul after it. Life glows in their limbs and their eyes and their faces, in the way that they sit and stand and walk. I found it still more wonderful in Bombay. We went up to the top of Malabar Hill last evening and walked in the gardens. All the world was out there, boys and girls, young men and women, always in separate groups, all in an atmosphere of radiant beauty. It filled one with a sense of worship for all the beauty in life which we in the West have driven out of it. I think I felt more open to nature than I have since I was at school. I don't know whether it will, be, whether it will last, but it's like the beginning of a rebirth. I think, of course, the mention of, of black and brown here is obviously very striking to us in the 21st century, but what I think is more significant is the immediacy with which Bede Griffiths is interpreting his surroundings here in the light of some of the philosophical um, and psychological reading that he's done. For example, his reference to uh, the unconscious mind, which is what he means by D.H. Lawrence, because it was Lawrence's um, Fantasia of the Unconscious that was his first encounter with the concept of the unconscious, and about the closeness to nature of some cultures rather than others. And I think it's also characteristic of his writing that he moves from a consideration of what's going on around him immediately to his internal state. He's aware constantly that the, two, that the one is um, affecting the other. And I don't think it's simply a narcissistic switch, the kind of personality tip that some people have of um, going from a conversation about something else immediately to what's currently going on um, in their life at that point. It's not that kind of thing at all. It's just that um, there isn't a clear distinction between the world around him and his internal state because it's connected and it's a, one is affecting the other in, on all sorts of levels um, of consciousness as far as he's concerned. I think in a way that sort of intimate and interconnected vision is quite common for some contemplatives. It makes me think of someone like Thomas Merton, for example. But again, you can see how it's not necessarily conducive to um, effective dialogue. So I think perhaps a part of this is that Griffith seems to be drawn on the one hand to the very personal um, and on the other to the grand historical or cosmological sweep. And what perhaps ought to come in the middle, a certain savvy about society and politics in the, in the arena that he's working in, where that should be, he has a set of quite impressionistic and archetypal exp um, expectations about India. So again, his first impressions of Bombay, for example, include the observation that he, could, he felt he could bow down in spirit, as he said, before each man and woman and child to worship the presence of God in them. And that crucially and interestingly, I knew that this was so before, and but now my eyes have seen it. Um, Shirley de Belay has pointed out a related tendency for Henri Rousseau, Griffith's contemporary um, in India, despite the fact that Rousseau travelled to India in 1948, a year after independence and partition, and just a few months after the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, Rousseau mentions almost nothing of this in his writing. And instead, before setting foot in India at all, is starting to speak about, um, in quotes from my beloved Tamils. There's no doubt that Griffiths and Rousseau are intelligent, sensitive, um, and as I say, in some cases, quite exceptional individuals. Um, 
I don't want to make any sort of facile judgments about them that they're simply sort of naive or uh, neo-orientalists or um, anything like that. Although there's, an, there's obviously an element of that which needs to be tackled. But what I think is more significant is that their way of locating meaning in the world, which the both of them do equally in their periods of living in Europe as they then do in India. So India is by no means any kind of an exception to the way they understand the um, external world. Tends to lead them to bypass this possibly quite a crucial level of the social and the political and of what is going on around them um, in the particular historical situation that they're facing. And again, the question then is, what is this going to mean for their contribution to uh, Indian Christianity? And I thought, again, as I said, I'm very early on in this, and reading some of Griffith's um, letters, he strike, his early reaction to India strike me very much as being similar to what Carl Jung had said about his visit to India. Carl Jung travelled to India in 1938, and he wrote about it the, uh, the year after in a number of articles. And because Griffith is a very big fan of Carl Jung ever since the early 1930s and read his stuff quite a lot, I can't prove yet that Griffiths had read Jung's material um, on India, and I'm not sure whether from any other intermediaries he knew what Jung had made of India, but there do seem to be parallels there. So just very briefly on, on what Jung had said um, of India. He suggested that um, many Indians have not yet, in his words, withdrawn into the capsule of the head, as had too many in uh, the West. Indians seem not so much to think as, as he put it, to perceive their thoughts as if they were visions or living things. In other words, as though thoughts were just one part of psychological experience as opposed to being its centre and its focus. And Jung went on to note that the word concept derives from the Latin concipere, to take something by grasping it thoroughly. And Jung goes on to say, that is how we get at the world in the West. Um, whereas Indian thinking is an increase of vision and not merely a predatory raid into the as yet unconquered realms of nature. So I think Jung's quite a useful point of comparison here because slightly contrary to um, Ronald Linden's reading um, of Jungians as being second-generation Orientalists for their uh, romantic and quite self-serving um, and rather naive constructions of India, although, as I say, there is an element of that which needs to be quite carefully tackled, both Jung and Griffiths, I think, are open to a relationship with Indian culture at quite a fundamental level based on true dialogue. What I've been trying to do is trying to get a sense of what I might actually mean by dialogue here, because it can, as you'll appreciate, be quite euphemistic, almost to the point of being um, quite useless. So I've drawn on uh, the writer J.J. Clark to make a distinction, or to try to make one, between debate, dialectic, and dialogue. And I think this is more than semantics, but it's a point that I very much appreciate some, some early feedback on. What I'd suggest is that debate means, um, well, debate implies a hoped-for victory for your own position, or for something like your own position, with no real transformation of your own position or of you as an individual. Dialectic, in the, obviously in the, the uh, Hegelian sense, implies the emergence of a new idea, but one that owes something to your position, and again, is not necessarily a fundamental transformation. Dialogue, on the other hand, suggests not just an intellectual, but also a personal openness to um, very deep and thoroughgoing change. And crucially, this is a very important element, the final end and outcome of that process is unpredictable. So you're committing yourself um, at quite a risky personal level to something that is ultimately unknown. And this is what I think makes it, or if it's a, if it's a sound distinction, would make it qualitatively different from a debate or from dialectic. 
And what I would tentatively suggest is that although colonial era missionaries cannot and should not be stereotyped and this sort of homogenized view of the colonial missionary that exists from you know, punch cartoons and from the writings of, of people in the 60s and 70s, partly building on Indian nationalist critiques, we do really need to try and readdress, and that's what's been happening for the last 10 or 20 years. That being so, you could generally say that at least from the late 19th century, the late 19th century, colonial era missionaries are probably characterized by a debating mentality. You would be trained to be able to not necessarily gratuitously disparage Indian religious systems, but at least to hold your own um, against uh, Hindus, Muslims and others and try to explain why Christianity is an improvement or is, a, is somehow uh, a step on. Probably in the 1930s and uh, well, maybe as far as, the, as early as the 1920s with someone like um, Farkar, you could say there is a dialectic um, emerging there where they're prepared to see what something, uh, something like Hindu philosophy or some aspects of Hindu philosophy might be able to contribute to Christianity and vice versa. But I think someone like B. Griffiths, similarly to Jung, is um, really quite different. I think he's open to what I'd call disorientation, quite radical disorientation. He's prepared for that to happen. And there's a phrase here which I found quite interesting. A writer, Judson Trapnell, who's written on the theology of this group of European contemplatives coming to India. He says that for Jules Monchalin, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name okay, um, his, it was the immersion in the unfamiliar which was a crucial part of his theological development after he came to India. This, uh, the sheer impact that the surroundings had upon him took him to a certain level of himself that altered the way he started to use or to understand concepts, the way he played with concepts. And obviously it's deeply unfashionable to, um, to go to somewhere like uh, India or wherever else and come back and say, God, it was so different from what we know. It's the kind of thing our undergraduates might say we might feel embarrassed for them. But at the same time, there is an element in the 19, late 1930s, actually, when Jules Monchalin went there, um, going straight out to Indian villages, trying to escape the influence of the British as far as possible. There is a certain immersion in familiar. It's a fairly legitimate phrase, I think, for him to be using. And again, this very deep experiential dimension here seems to have been key. And I think this concept of disorientation possibly could be useful. And I think this is something that Griffiths was um, open to. So I think just to wrap up on, on this first of the two, the like, two areas that I wanted to discuss, um, no sort of massively interesting conclusions as yet, but it seems to me that the same things that made Griffiths uh, possibly quite a, a dangerous or an unpredictable quantity in India in terms of both interreligious dialogue and also the enculturation of Christianity further into India. Those same things also um, make him that much more open, uh, potentially interesting. Sometimes that openness does come across as uh, naivety, particularly, I think, to someone living in our generation. But these things are so close in his personality to one another that I think it makes for uh, an unpredictable situation, possibly quite uh, an interesting one. And one big part of the research, I've been very lucky, um, Shirley de Belay has been helping me out with looking at Bede's own writings, uh, his letters and his articles, etc. What I'm trying to do in India, starting actually next week, is to try and find diocesan records in India, media records, people that knew Bede, to try and get a sense of how he was received in India, what sort of contacts he had with uh, Indian theologians, Try to really tell that side of the story to see what might be going on. So that's the first half, and it seems to me I've probably got about 
coming up to 10 minutes if we start a little bit. To look at the second half, which is broadening it out slightly. How does how do B. Griffiths and also an Indian theologian, M. M. Thomas, see the position of Indian Christianity in the wider world in terms of religion and interreligious dialogue, but also in terms of um, social policy, social radicalism, uh, and politics? So, just two very brief themes here before uh, I finish. Firstly, the need for a fundamental point of departure in the thinking of both men, where dialogue and enculturation are concerned. Where do you start with this sort of issue? Secondly, how are you going to try to understand Indian Christianity's position, first of all, in Asia, uh, given that this is 1950, 60, the era of the non-aligned movement, um, led, of course, well, uh, the aspiring leader, of course, being Jawaharlal Nehru, and also, how do you try and construe it where global Christianity, particularly the influence of Western Christianity, is concerned. And Western Christianity in this period is changing in all sorts of interesting ways in its own right, and these two men are engaging with some of those changes. So there are, different, there are similarities and differences, and what I haven't yet discovered between these two is how much they actually had to do with one another. M.M. Thomas is from a Protestant background, B. Griffiths from Catholic background. There were, there were forums in which the two of them could have got together, in the 50s and the 60s, but as yet in my research I've not found a lot of contact between them, and they certainly don't reference each other um, in their work. But they both take experience as being uh, primary, and they seem to work from there, drawing on mostly Western body of uh, religion, philosophy, and psychology. But interestingly, the Western uh, philosophers and psychologists that they're using are themselves, people like John Macquarie, the Scottish theologian, and Carl Jung, very much, um, their thinking is very much based in uh, communications with non-Christian religions by this point. So I think it's, it's clear that whatever happens for a so-called truly Indian Christianity, trying to, imagining that you can base it on so-called purely Indian concepts and ideas and make nationality somehow a major criterion is not going to work. Things have gone too far by this point in terms of cross-fertilisation for that to really be anything more than uh, rhetoric, I think. But so both men draw on experience as being primary. They also look back to a similar um, run of modern Indian pioneers of Hindu-Christian dialogue and of Christian enculturation running back to the 1820s and 1830s, people like Ramahan Roy. Some of these people were Christian converts and others remained within the Hindu tradition but still um, deeply influenced uh, the trajectory that Indian Christianity took. Um, examples of the latter, people like Ramahan Roy and uh, Gandhi himself. And interestingly, Thomas suggests, M.M. Thomas suggests, that, or he points out, that a lot of these figures haven't, uh, for one reason or another, formulated any kind of systematic Indian Christian theology. And he wonders, in his writing, whether that is really necessary, whether systematic <coughs> theology, highly conceptual, is really part of Western Christian culture and isn't something that Indians necessarily need to feel um, they should worry about. And this, I think, chimes a little bit with the writings of, recent writings of people like Satyanathan Clark and Michael uh, Amalados, who suggest that Western theology can be rather heavy on linguistic concepts and tends to ignore things like the nuances of uh, inner feelings, of gesture, imagination, and of symbol, which people like Clark point out is actually fundamental to the religious experience of many of India's Christian communities, particularly uh, Dalits, for example. And I think Griffiths shares this to an extent since 
uh, 20 years before he even gets to India, he's been very worried about the tendency to conceptualise experience or to worry about concepts too much and to ignore experience or to fail to give ordinary Christians in Europe that sense of contact. So he, he, he thinks, for example, that European Christians tend to um, have knowledge about Christ, as he would say, rather than having knowledge of. And this is what Europe needs to try to rediscover. So they both have this uh, sort of view. They both draw quite heavily on modern psychology. They find that to be quite a useful way of where it's necessary, conceptualising religious experience. So they both say that the basis of everything is an, an encounter below the level of ordinary consciousness between the human self and the divine. And they try to work that out um, in practice, what that might mean in practice for an Indian Christianity. And Thomas draws on uh, the work of his colleague, Paul Devanandan, um, and Bede goes along with this, although he doesn't use the same concepts, where uh, Paul Devanandan has suggested that this uh, encounter makes its way into conscious experience in three ways in particular. And Indian Christianity can try to draw on this. You have cultus, you have culture, and creed. Very, very briefly, cultus is to do with sacramental and symbolic expressions and images. Culture is to refer to human behaviour, including ethics, fitting Christianity with local social systems. And creed is attempts to formulate this in terms of concepts and in terms of propositions. So both men, of course, see a need for a balance, and they say this is the kind of thing we need to work out where the balance might lie. But both of them, and Thomas in particular, think that recent psychological research <coughs> is suggesting that we shouldn't overemphasise creed, concepts, uh, and propositions, because images and symbols seem to be so uh, fundamental to, our, um, to what is human psychological experience. And this is very much being drawn upon in some of the recent Indian Christian writing. Culture also is important. He quotes, uh, Thomas quotes John Macquarie, saying that revelation has to be lived in order to be apprehended, which means that a person's everyday actions need to both reflect and to try to foster this divine encounter. And unless this happens, any kind of conceptual understanding is going to be uh, inaccurate, quite fundamentally flawed. But where they differ, very briefly, is that where Thomas, I remember Thomas thinks that at the conceptual level there's still a lot of work to do and we need to be quite open, um, particularly in terms of a dialogue amongst different Asian religions, about how we can try to construe Indian Christianity. Griffiths is very much attracted to um, Vedanta as a theological vehicle for Christianity in India. He suggests that it's basically ready and waiting. We just need to use it. And interestingly, he says that Europeans in India are quite fond of this idea, but Indians themselves don't seem to be all that interested. You can only find one person, um, one Indian Christian who's keen, which is Father Mascarenhas, a, a Jesuit in Bombay, who writes a book, The Quintessence of Hinduism, who makes this argument. But Griffiths has to acknowledge that this person uh, at his seminary where he teaches is persona non grata. People don't really like that sort of direction. And it really seems that both in Europe, uh, in the Indian, sorry, the, the, the Catholic hierarchy there, and also in Indian Catholicism, this sort of idea, using the Vedanta as a vehicle for, uh, for Christianity in India, is extremely unpopular. Just in 1950, there's been a publication which warns of the encyclical Humani uh, Generis, which warns theologians and philosophers, Catholic theologians and philosophers, not to mess around with this sort of thing, not to go for new faddish theologies. And that seems to be where Vedanta is placing itself. 
And just briefly, before I finish on the issue of um, <clears throat> the position of Christianity in socio-political terms, one of the reasons why M.M. Thomas is sceptical of the use of Vedanta as a vehicle for Indian Christianity is that he is himself a social activist. He's an ex-communist, a future governor of the state of Nagaland in the early 1990s. And one of his big ideas is that, is that there is this Asian revolution taking place, which to a great extent owes something to the Christian spirit, whether or not it has anything to do with actual Christian missionary activity or Christian conversion. He suggests that contact with the West has, he sees it in terms of the, the Christ in the West um, uh, awakening the Christ in the East. What he really means is that a lot of Asian religious traditions have tended to be um, monist in outlook, have tended to downplay the personal in terms of their philosophy and their theology, and that this has dampened uh, a sense of personal conscience and consciousness, he uses these two words, and that this has um, held some Asian cultures back in terms of real social activism and social radicalism. And he worries that if Indian Christianity goes down the route of using Vedanta as its vehicle, then this awakening of the personal, in both in religion but more importantly in social life, is somehow going to be lost. And what's key is that he does not want Indian Christianity to be fundamentally interested in making uh, converts, whether in India or further abroad, but as being instrumental in fostering a secular culture where a debate can be had between different Asian uh, religions, but a debate that is oriented towards the personal, as he puts it, that tries to bring out the personal, the personalistic elements of Asian religion, because this is key to Asians waking up to a real social activism. There is so much work to be done in Asia, you know, in the aftermath of colonialism, that they can't afford to have anything but an extreme social activist uh, mentality. Griffiths, on the other hand, somewhere where I think, at least in my reading so far, he's rather weak here, this is my last point very briefly, is that he still goes for either the personal or the very local level, or, on the other hand, the grand ultimate cosmological. He doesn't have much to say about India's, uh, about India's political situation, or even Asia's political situation. He's interested in Gandhian village self-sufficiency, takes a very similar view to Gandhi and to Vinoba Bhave uh, in this sense, but very little to say about uh, Indian politics by itself. He sees things, if at all, on the international scale and how, crucially, an Indian Christianity might help European Christianity wake up to the contemplative dimension and from there, from the roots upwards, alter its social and its political values to try and stave off any kind of major um, conflict between the world's nuclear-armed powers. This is the 1950s and 60s that he's writing in. Um, so that's it. Those are some of the big themes that I'm trying to work with so far, but if we have any, have any thoughts, I'd very much like to hear them.